And, and that is not a biblical title, but it is one that we remember because of the history of the church and how you rescued the gospel through the Reformation. And you have passed it down to us. And so we praise you. Thank you, Father, for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for restoring to us the truth of Scripture. No, Father, I pray that we would be a church that forever is grounded not in our own opinions, or even in our own understandings, that, Father, we would never forget our history and the history of your church and how you have built it and grown it and how you, you continue to build it and grow it. And so grow us, Father, deeper. If you don't add another person to this body until Jesus comes, I pray that we would forever grow deeper in our knowledge of Christ and our devotion to him and our love for him. Oh, Father, make it so even today as we look at these, his final teaching to the disciples at the end of the farewell discourse. Oh, Father, I pray that you would speak to us and use it to change us, we pray in, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in John chapter 16 this morning. It has been said that believers live in two places at the same time. In our text for this morning, Jesus will say, we'll read it in just a minute, in verse 33, John 16, that we live, quote, in me and, quote, in the world. In me, Jesus says, you will have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, and you will have them simultaneously. You will have tribulation, but in the tribulation, you will have peace, and you will have peace, but it will be in the whirlwind of tribulation. On the one hand, we live in Christ, in Christ, Colossians 3, 3 says that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. This is our new life. This is our spiritual, incorruptible, eternal life. We are in Christ. He is our life. This is the place and the position of great privilege and provision. Here we fellowship with Christ where there is an unlimited supply of grace and peace for us to enjoy. Oh, beloved, do not allow yourself a single day without this peace. It is your right and privilege as one who is related by blood to the Prince of Peace. We need this peace. We need it to enable us to live faithfully every day and joyfully in that other place where God has called us to live, and that is in the world where we have tribulation. We live in a Genesis 3 world, and we look all around, and there's brokenness, there's destruction, there's confusion, there is sin, sorrow, temptation everywhere we look, disorder. Even for those of us who are privileged to have believing wives and children, even we know the hardship of living in a world where sin reigns. And we know what it's like to have a heart in which sin abounds, remnant sin. 
life in this world is a, is a daily struggle, and walking in the Spirit is a daily battle. But sometimes we forget that we also live in another place. We live in the first place every day that we live in the other place. We live not only in the world of tribulation, we live in Christ. We live in Christ who daily provides everything we need for life and godliness and joy and peace, the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that passes all understanding. Peace, tranquility, rest of soul. At this point in the narrative of John's gospel, the disciples are about to enter into the greatest storm of their lives and Jesus is doing all that he can to prepare them for it without actually revealing to them the details, the, the, the difficult, hard details of what lies ahead. In verse 25, we read, these things I have spoken to you. This is Jesus' way of indicating a transition in his discourse with the disciple ever since chapter 13, where he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we'll take part in today, where he washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. Ever since then, he, his, his teaching has been focused on... Um, giving them a whole catalog of, of final words, final truths that he wanted them to know. And now, however, he's bringing this discourse to a close. We had the upper room discourse, and then it seems at the end of that they stepped out of the house. Maybe they're in the courtyard of the house. And we call this the farewell discourse, and now he's right at the end of that. From here, they'll walk across the, um, uh, the valley, um, and, and, and then into the Garden of Gethsemane. And we pick up here in the narrative. Stand with me. Chapter 16, verses 25 through 33. Again, Jesus starts off by introducing his conclusion. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And that day you will, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. I am leaving the world again, and going to my father. And his disciples said, No, no, Lord, now you are speaking plainly and, and not using any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you really believe? Do you really believe? Behold, an hour is coming. And it's already come for you to be scattered, each to own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. It's just one of those texts that hardly need explanation. Um, but there's some wonderful things here that we should probably focus on so that we have 
a greater understanding to help us worship the Lord Jesus. So as we've seen in the past weeks, Jesus' chief concern is not his own well-being, but that of his men. He's concerned that they will have a rock-solid hope to cling to when their world begins crashing in around them. So he says things like 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled nor let them be fearful. In 1427, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 1511, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So you see, he was revealing to them and to us that while we live in this world of turmoil and tribulation, we also have something the world can know nothing of. The world knows nothing. We are an enigma to the world. Part of the reason they hate Christians is because they they just can't comprehend. Wipe that silly smile off your face. The joy. I was going to share this last week, but my wife was here, and I already talked to her, talked about her twice, and she's not here this Sunday, so I'll say something new. Uh, I mentioned last week that her uh, computer hard drive crashed, and uh, somehow along the way, we forgot the whole backup thing. And, and so we, we took it down to the Apple store, and um, the guy worked with us for like 45 minutes. And he was really kind, and, but when he saw what was happening, he got nervous. And as we went along, I looked up at my wife at one point, and she was kind of around the corner of the bar, and, and her eyes were closed. And I thought, she's praying right now for her, <laughs> for her hard drive. She wants those pictures that were on there. And... Um, and when we got to the end, and, and this uh, technician, this genius, um, came to the conclusion there's no saving your hard drive. And he told us that in the gentlest terms possible. And then moved on about what we ought to do and gave us some ideas. And in the middle of doing that, he stopped and he looked at us and said, I just want to thank you guys. And he's <laughs> specifically looking at Chris. I just want to thank you guys for your attitude. This is just so refreshing to have somebody who loses their hard drive and they're not mad at me. <laughs> As if I had something to do with it. Thank you. And in my heart I said, yes, this is how it should be. They should see that in us. They should see it. They should see that our hearts are not tied. Our hearts are not tied to hard drives and cars and homes but rather to Christ. We live in Christ where fear is vanquished and where our hearts are flooded with peace and joy. Because Christ was victorious over the world, we too can be victorious in the world. And by victorious, let me just define it for us. When I talk about victory, I'm talking about everyday faithfulness. Um, Not perfection. Sometimes we think of victory. Oh, I've conquered that sin. I'll never be tempted by it again. That's probably not true. Hopefully you'll be less tempted by it. But in this world, you, you will be tempted. And so what are we talking about with victory? We're talking about faithfulness in the, in, with a heart attitude that is joyful and peaceful and thankful still, regardless of what's happening in the other place that you live in, namely the world. And so why do we have access to this privilege? That's the question for this morning why do we have access to, the privilege, to this privilege? And I think, what did I entitle this? Triumph over trials through Christ or in Christ. So why do we have access to this privilege of peace and joy in the midst of a world in turmoil? Number one, 
because he has revealed to us his truth. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. Now, when you think about that verse, and there's, there's more to this, but when you just think about what he just said there, if you just read it, you'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, this is all English, I'm, I'm reading it, uh-huh, uh-huh. But you've got to stop and you've got to think. What is he actually saying here? And isn't it strange? This is a strange thing to say. When you think about this, I mean, how strange of Jesus. First, he acknowledges that he, he has indeed been speaking to the disciples in veiled speech, right? And they're going, oh, man, I just, we just don't understand. Can, can you repeat that? Can you, can you just, he was constantly saying things that they didn't understand. And finally, he comes out with it. I've been speaking to you in veiled language, in figurative speech. For example, Jesus had spoken about raising the temple up in three days. What is that? Talking about being born again, Nicodemus goes, what? Living water that quenches your thirst once and for all. Rivers of living water flowing within you. And John has to say, later on, after all of this takes place and the Holy Spirit comes and quickens his heart so he understands, he wrote in the Gospel of John, by this Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit, but nobody knew that. He spoke of people who were to never see death, also about himself as the one whose flesh believers must eat and whose blood they must drink. Are you kidding? I'm out of here. And most of his disciples left at that point. Remember, that's where Jesus looked at his 12 and said, are you going to leave me now too? And they said, where do we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. But a lot of people left. He talked about having preceded Abraham in time before Abraham was, I am. What? You're not even 50 years old yet. He talked about him being the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He talked about the mysterious betrayer whose identity remained disclosed, undisclosed for a considerable period of time. And he talked about, in, in last week, remember at the beginning in, in verse 23, um, when he's talking about a, a little while, this enigmatic Little while, followed by an equally confusing little while, and they were arguing, what is this little while? What is it going to? The, all of this enigmatic, this, this, it's called in, in Hebrew, it is called a mashal, a, a proverb, proverbial speak, or dark saying. It's just hard to understand. You really can't. It's designed so that you won't fully understand. And Jesus confesses, I've been speaking to you in veiled language. This is on purpose. It's not that you're dumb. It's that I've been very, very careful. And, and by and by, you will understand. Um, now, he's promising them that all of that's going to change, which was probably a great relief to them. The problem is, here's the strange thing. I mean, he knows what's going on. In less than 24 hours, he's dead. What do you mean in a little while you'll start speaking to us in plain speech? I mean, you look back on this and go, you're going to die 24 hours, less than 24 hours after you say this. That's strange. And nevertheless, he says, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in veiled language, but will speak to you plainly of the Father. Now, how can that be? 
And I would submit to you, obviously hindsight is 2020 now, I would submit to you that the only way this makes sense is in light of the resurrection, the resurrection and the ongoing ministry of the Spirit through the Word. And this is exactly what we discover after the crucifixion. You remember in Luke chapter 24 when two of the disciples, this is after the crucifixion, after the burial, and it's Easter Sunday morning, they're on their way back, two disciples on their way back to Emmaus, and Jesus joins them and they get talking, they don't know, who, they don't know it's him. And the text says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. Remember after he disappeared, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he unpacked the word of God? Jesus speaking plainly after the resurrection. Not only that, I think he's also, and more formidably, speaking about what the apostles would teach what these same men who just can't understand what Jesus is saying, they're going to have such clarity on the truth of Scripture, on the truth of Jesus' teaching, that they are going to explain it clearly. And we see this in the New Testament. Uh, we see this in the teachings of Peter and Paul you know, on critical issues in very direct and open manner. For, we might say the seed of the gospel comes fully developed into a plant. It becomes the developed plant under the ministry of the apostles. The teaching on the Father's plan of redemption is set forth in wonderful passages such as Romans 8 and Romans 5 and Romans 3 and Ephesians 1, and Philippians 2, and 1 Peter 1, and 1 John 3, and the book of Hebrews. And that's just one topic where they just wax eloquent. They answer all the questions, speaking plainly. Jesus was referring to the ministry, his ministry through the Holy Spirit after his ascension to the Father. And beloved, his ascension, you know, we don't talk about, we don't celebrate the day of ascension right? The Orthodox Church does that. Others do that. We ought to do something for the day of ascension because it is critical. If, if Jesus had not gone back to the Father and sat back on his throne to, to take all authority over heaven and earth, we wouldn't have, the Spirit wouldn't have come, presumably, because Jesus said, I must go, otherwise the Spirit will not come. Anyway, that's a different sermon. We'll wait till after Easter, maybe. Beloved, this is where peace begins. It begins with the truth. It comes to us by the truth that replaces fear with hope, which in turn, hope fills us with a settled peace. Why? Because we know that our sovereign Lord is in absolute control over everything that touches our lives. There is nothing hidden from the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows it all, and yet he loves us, and we can trust him. And so having victory over tribulation begins by knowing the truth. It was Jesus himself who said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. This isn't the truth about the other politician. This is the truth of the word of God. The truth of the gospel brings us objective peace. We have peace with God. But it also brings us it spills over in subjective peace that calms our anxiety, 
and takes away the fear in our hearts. It offers us tranquility and makes room for joy. It all begins with the truth. And so Jesus says, I'm not always going to speak to you in enigmatic terms, veiled speech, proverbial dark sayings. The hours come, and I will speak to you plainly. And he did. And we have this book as proof. If there's one thing that we gained from the resurrection, I mean, uh, the uh, Reformation, uh, it was the restoration of this book to the people. This is the truth. And it is the basis of our hope, which gives us peace and joy. So we have victory in the world of tribulation because Jesus has revealed the truth. Second, we can have victory in a world of tribulation because we are loved by the Father. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. I don't, I don't know what your view of God is. I know often, you know, our Roman Catholic friends, in, former Roman Catholic in the church, will, will tell you, when they were Roman Catholic, you know, Going to God, you can't do that. You can't do that. And God is really hard. And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus isn't as hard as the Father, but he's, you know, he's, he's the king. And he's, he's, you can't approach him. Uh, you have to get to Jesus another way. So you go, you go to Jesus' mother, because nobody can resist their mother, or to the saints. And they will speak to Jesus, who will speak to the Father. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how it works. You don't have to go to anybody else. And I'm not saying that I will make your request to the Father because I won't have to. And the reason is, my Father loves you. Your Father loves you. And they could approach Jesus in a new way. In the age of the Spirit, the disciples would do something they had never done before. They would approach the Father in Jesus' name. That is, we talked about this last week, in harmony with what he has revealed in his word and on the basis of his accomplished work. I remember one occasion sitting in my study, studying away, and I hear a knock on the door. And it was this young man. He comes in and he introduces himself. And he says, hey, I had a question, and your son... <laughs> told me I could come and, and ask you. And, and I didn't say, oh, why did God give me boys? I'm trying to study here. <laughs> no, oh, you know Josh. You know Josh. Tell me about your friendship with him. And come in and ask your question. He came in the name of my son. And that's what we do every time we come in prayer. We come asking for things that is consistent with God's word, and we come in the name by the authority of Jesus, knowing that it's only because of his atoning, his atoning work on our behalf that we reconciled to God and counted righteous in his sight. But it's not as though the Father is reluctant to receive us, for Jesus says, don't let the phrase pass you by as if it's a small thing. Jesus says, the Father himself loves you. Beloved, what a delightful little sentence. The Father himself loves you. 
And, and I use the word delightful because when you look at this in the Greek, what you're going to see is when it says the Father loves you, we think Greek word, love, and we would say the Greek word is agape or agape, however you say it. Um, that's not the word here. It's another word that simply means affection. Affection. The agape, and we don't want to make too much of the distinction of words here because they're used sometimes interchangeably, but generally speaking, we think of agape, you think of this massive sacrificial love. When you th- very objective. Affection just seems very subjective. He delights in you. He loves you. In fact, the word in the context, some co- scholars will point out, that uh, it is affection based on, um, based on the reality that both God and you have a common interest. It's affection. People are friends, usually, because there is a common interest. And that's the way it is, I think, in this context, it's what we're talking about. Relative to our relationship with God, you say, well, that's pretty precise. Where do you get that? That's a good question. Look at the end of verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because, okay, so here's, he's going to define it for us. Because you have loved me. So what's the common point of interest? God the Father loves his son. I love his son. Therefore, God loves me. You see that? Now, I realize most of the time when the scriptures speak of God loving us, it is unconditional. But not always. The unconditional love always, always, always applies. It always applies. If you sin, it applies. But here, there's a little condition, or at least an explanation. The Father has a sweet affection for you because of your affection for Jesus. You love his Son. Why would he not love you? Therefore, you can ask him anything according to his will. As you're abiding in Christ, you do it in Jesus' name, which means according to his revealed will. And this father, whose affection is not only for his only begotten son, but for you, his adopted son, and he will grant you whatever you request. It's beautiful, isn't it? Not just the Father has sacrificed for me, but he loves me. He loves me. Um, As we think about that, it's important to clarify that Jesus is not denying that he would intercede for his disciples before the Father. And we don't have time to go into that. But Jesus is our great high priest. And minimally, He always lives to make intercession for us. He stands as our high priest. And this is what he's saying to the Father. When the accuser comes and says, he's not worthy, he's sinned. Jesus, Father, I died for him. I died for him. I died for him. I made atonement for him. Count him as righteous. Count him as righteous. Count him as righteous. I am his advocate. I am their advocate. I stand as the defense attorney, and my defense is always just and true and holy, and I'm telling you, they are not guilty. 
because I already paid the price. Now, what is it you would like to ask of the Father? Isn't that beautiful? And so he always lives to make intercession for us. He's always standing before the Father. So why do we have resources to have victory over tribulation while living in the world? Well, because the Father loves us. He has tender affection for us. And because of that, we can approach him in the name of the Son and receive from him everything that we need to be faithful in our circumstance and experience the joy and peace that Jesus promised. And so we have victory over tribulation because Jesus has revealed the truth and because we are loved by the Father. Third, and I wrote this sermon before I realized it was Lord's Supper Sunday, so I'll do my best here. Third, because God gave his son, I can't stop yet, this is, if there, if there is a part of the scripture you'll run right by without seeing the glory of it, it's, it's this verse, verse 28. And even as I read it, you're going to have to think about it. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world and again going to my Father. It's so simple, you'll just run right past it. John's entire Christology is summed up in this verse. The whole story, the whole narrative from, from John chapter 1 all the way to after the ascension and everything in between, his entire Christology is summed up here. First, I came out from the Father. This refers to Jesus' perfect deity, his preexistence, and his love manifesting departure from heaven to earth, this sin cursed world to become a man. He left everything. He emptied himself, Paul will say, in the great kenosis passage of Philippians chapter 2. What is this? This is condescension. This is not only the Father humbling himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in earth, but humbling himself to leave heaven and to leave behind his divine privileges and position. He left it all behind. This is condescension. Second, I am come into the world. This describes Christ coming to earth as a human baby, born of a woman, born under the law. It speaks to his active obedience to the Father on behalf of those who are undeserving. This, beloved, is incarnation. And then third, I am leaving the world. The path of suffering brings about his death, his departure from the world. He will be arrested this very night, and the next day he will be murdered. This is crucifixion and atonement. And then finally, again, I am going back to the Father. I am going to the Father. This is the grand finale. And it comes as Jesus escapes the clutches of death and returns to the Father to resume his rightful place at the right hand of majesty on high. This is resurrection and ascension. This is all of John's Christology. And it is crammed into four statements in one verse. Don't tell me the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with this. About these verses, Howard uh, uh, um, Hendrickson, not Howard Hendricks. Um, Hendrickson writes this. Truly beautiful 
and full of majesty is this finale of Christ's farewell to his disciples. The note of victory prevails. We behold the Son of Man in the full consciousness of his triumph. Every word spells exaltation over the accomplishment of the task which has been assigned to him. Every clause is filled with resolute determination to carry out the Father's will. In the mind of Jesus Christ, the battle is already won. It's done. It hasn't happened yet in the narrative. But in Jesus' mind, it's done. That's how confident. There was no way this was going to fail. And so we can have peace and joy in this world in tribulation only because of Jesus' act of obedience to the Father. His act of obedience. Theologians also refer to Jesus' as passive obedience. Passive obedience would be allowing himself to be crucified. He didn't have to do anything. Just let him do it. Um, it's a sweet story about J. Gresham Machem who left Princeton Seminary to found um, Westminster Theological Seminary. And on his dying day, his last breath, his friend, I forget his friend's name, was sitting with him and was talking to him, and he could hardly speak. But he opened his eyes, and his last words were, Brother, isn't the passive work of Jesus Christ, isn't the passive obedience of Jesus Christ a glorious thing? What are you going to do on your deathbed? <laughs> he was thinking of the intricacies of the atonement that Jesus won for him. He left his home in heaven. He became a man. He fulfilled every righteous requirement of the law on our behalf. He suffered and died for our sins. And then he rose again victoriously, conquering as king, and sat down at the right hand of the Father where he always lives to make intercession for us. On this basis alone do we have joy and peace in this life. Not only that, number three, why do we have this privileges? Well, here's a negative one. Not because of our own understanding, Look at verse 29. His disciples said, whoa, I mean, lo. And we would say, well, uh, now you are speaking plainly and you are not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. And suddenly, the disciples act like lightning has finally struck their brains and they understand it all. Now they believe that he is from God. And you can read five, six different authors on this, and they're baffled by it. And Spurgeon's the only one who says so. And essentially, he says in flowery language, I have no idea what they're talking about. But I think S. Lewis Johnson gets it right when he says, they were bluffing. <laughs> Jesus knows they were bluffing. He knows they're bluffing. They're too embarrassed to admit that at the end of all of his teaching, they still don't understand what he's saying. So they make one final obvious confession. We believe that you've come from God. What was that, a revelation? You haven't figured that out before now? I mean, they got something, and it's got to be true, because Jesus knows better. They're bluffing. You're too embarrassed to admit it. 
And truly, I mean, this is a good confession, and no one should fault them for not reaching further than they could with the light that they had. And remember, Jesus had all along been speaking to them in veiled speech. It's okay for them not to understand. And there was one thing that they were sure of. Whatever Jesus was trying to communicate, they knew this one thing, that he had come from God. And that, however, does not mean that their faith was strong and mature. Notice Jesus' response in verses 31 and 32. He says, do you believe? Do you believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. You believe now. I don't question your belief, but it's a weak faith. I think one of the things Jesus is doing is warning them about overconfidence in their own trust in God. Perhaps their belief was not as strong and mature as they had imagined. Perhaps they were overconfident about their spiritual maturity. On this point, Charles Spurgeon writes, we often think that we have great heaps of gold, the gold of faith, and it glitters very brightly, but it is not the precious metal after all. So Jesus said, do you believe? Your glittering faith may not be all that it's cracked up to be. Just be humble about that. Be growing. Isn't it wonderful to realize that our peace and joy in this life are not conditional on a full understanding and perfect faith? Jesus was going to see them through it anyway. Now, our victory in this life is grounded in the person of Jesus Christ, not our understanding. Yes, we should have as much understanding as we can possibly have. And the more we understand God's commands and promises, the more mature, or I presume, that we will be. If your heart is for him, our victory is grounded not, however, in the level of our faith or the degree of our knowledge, but rather in the objective work of the person of Jesus Christ. He's active obedience on our behalf. He accomplished everything we need by his own righteous life and bloody death. Our faith is not in our own understanding, but in Christ to accomplish things for us that we can hardly even imagine. And then lastly, number five, why do we have this privilege? Because the war is already won. Look at verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. King James says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The operative phrase here is, in me. These things I have spoken unto you, so that in me you may have peace. Not in your circumstances, You've got to have a place where you can get that peace that's not in the world. That's the other place where you live. And there you will have tribulation. But in me, you can have peace. You can have tranquility. Now, I make a big deal when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, that when Paul says love, joy, peace, peace is not the, pass, the peace that passes all understanding. He's talking about relationships there. He's talking about peace with other people where there should be war. It's objective. But here... It is the peace that passes all understanding. 
It's the peace that passes all understanding. The world has all kinds of means or ways for people to discover inner peace. You know, cross your legs, hum a tone, empty your mind of all negative thinking, separate yourself from toxic relationships, whatever that means. Go spend money on something, buy a car, go eat your favorite ice cream, gobs of it. Bluebell will be out when? Tomorrow? How did you all know that? And when I ask you a question from the pulpit, you're reluctant to answer Bluebell. Oh my goodness, we got a worship issue here. I better keep going. <laughs> oh, the thought's going through my mind. I gotta rein it in. We know where our congregation gets their peace. I just, we just need to call them and say, you need, to, you need to label a new brand, a new kind, called peace, peace cream. Um, but you know what? <laughs> They're all false refuges, every one of them. I was, I was grumpy the other day. We've moved into our house. We have no floors. We've got no kitchen sink. Our, our oven is hardwired into the garage, so you don't hear it when it buzzes and things burn and... And, uh, you know, it's just this transition. And, uh, and I was really grumpy one day. And uh, before I we went to bed that night, I took a walk, and I got thinking. And I guess it was the next morning. I took a walk. I was praying, listening to Scripture. And, and it occurred to me. And I went to my wife, and I said, Honey, last night, remember when I was grumpy? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, not really. She's very gracious. I said, I figured out why. I look at the house, and I it's supposed to be my refuge, and it's not comfortable. And I realized I was making the house my refuge, my savior. It makes a, a terrible God. And I was worshiping it last night instead of him. And I need to ask your forgiveness. And beloved, it's so important that we see this Peace doesn't come from any of these things. These are merely shadows of the true refuge that God has provided for us in his son. Jesus says, in me, you will have peace. In 1427, Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you peace. The peace Jesus offers is not like the peace of the world. His peace starts with the objective peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ. It's the peace that he purchased with his own blood on behalf of sinners. And from that objective peace with God flows the subjective, personal peace, the inner tranquility that we enjoy in fellowship with him. Again, Paul picks up on this. And he says that the peace we have is not like the world's peace. He, he writes in Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then again, he says in Romans 8, verse 6, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. You see, true peace comes in the world, in a world of tribulation, when we set our minds on things above, Paul says in Colossians 3, you set your mind on things above where Christ is. Where is he? Seated at the right hand of God. 
That's where peace comes from. We don't get Christ's peace by thinking happy thoughts. By reminding, of ourselves, reminding ourselves of how great and wonderful and awesome Jesus is. And how safe and how blessed we are to be counted by God as in him. It's upon this basis that Paul can write in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer in Jesus' name, right? In supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Does this sound like what Jesus is talking about? Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Ask anything of the Father in my name, and he will give it to you because he loves you. The principle that what happens to the master will happen to the disciples also applies in reverse. The disciples can expect to conquer because of Jesus, because of their relationship with Jesus. In other words, the words be of good courage or good cheer, I have conquered the world, clearly implies you, therefore, my followers, will also conquer. In fact, it will be Paul who says in Romans 8, and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, through him, in him, in me, Jesus says. And so, beloved, in the midst of tribulation, you can, overcome, you can experience peace and be filled with joy because Jesus has been victorious. The battle is already won. Or to say it in his words, in the world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Let's pray. And Lord, we praise you for this blessed truth. And thank you, Father, that daily we can, even hourly, experience the peace that passes all understanding in fellowship and communion with you. And oh, Father, I pray that you would protect us from the busyness of life that keeps us from sitting at your feet and listening to you speak through your word and talking to you about the things we know we need because you've revealed them to us, and even the things that we desire, our holy affections, knowing that you love us and you've provided your son for us. Well, Father, help us now to think clearly about the basis, the ground, the rock under all of this, namely the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And may it be true, Father, as we take this table, the Lord's table, that you will be glorified and we will be filled with joy. In communion with him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.